One focus, one subject. Welcome to The Real Story, the podcast that brings together global experts to explain one issue shaping the news. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. You're listening to The Real Story with me, Celia Hatton, and this week took our conversation to China. And our question, has China hit its peak? It was one of the modern world's greatest success stories. 800 million people have been lifted out of extreme poverty since China began opening up in the late 1970s. With economic growth averaging around 10% a year, a truly stunning figure, the country's communist leaders felt they had created a superior form of capitalism, funneling cheap capital towards powerful state institutions with a grudging toleration for private entrepreneurs. But then problems like inequality and pollution mounted and debts piled up too. Growth has slowed affecting workers. So we asked, can China tackle the problems it's facing? And what will happen to the Communist Party if it doesn't? I've been speaking about these questions with three guests who have extensive insight into China and its growth. It was a very interesting discussion from which I learned a lot, and I'm sure you'll find it interesting too. But first, let's hear from Vincent Ni. He works for the BBC's Chinese service, and I went out to meet him at a shopping mall in London. Hi. How are you? Hi, Celia. Thanks for coming. Come sit down. Come sit down. Uh, So, Vincent, busy week, isn't it? Indeed, a busy week. In Beijing, there is a national parliament going on at the moment. A lot of talk is about China's economy, the future of the Chinese economy. So it seems a bit strange that we're sitting in a shopping mall in London discussing the Chinese economy. Actually, it's a good place to have this conversation because we can see all the parts of the economy on display here. Yes, absolutely. Just next to us, there's this Xiaomi shop. Xiaomi is the prominent Chinese technology brand that sells different kinds of phones that try to compete with iPhone here in the West and also Samsung from South Korea. Um, But this is the future of the Chinese economy. Um, At the moment, China is still very much dominated by manufacturing-based economy. So a few doors next to Xiaomi, there's this uh, clothing shop where you can see all these made-in-China brands. So you can see what China is trying to pivot away from, which is kind of low-end manufacturing, things like shoes and sunglasses, towards those big names like Xiaomi that it's really proud of. Yes, indeed. And this is a very tough journey for China at the moment. The transition is very painful. It's funny because when I was a correspondent in China for such a long time, we always had this number that was kind of spouted out many times by Chinese economists and, and frankly, by Chinese party members as well, saying that if Chinese growth ever dropped below 8%, it would be disastrous for China, that social unrest would break out. And you mentioned the pain, and, and you know it was the government this week that said that growth could drop as low as 6% in the upcoming year. Yes, this 8% figure is a bit of mysterious to me because I think 8%, 10% doesn't really matter. What matters is 8% symbolizes the faster growth in the Chinese economy in the past. And now we are entering an uncharted water for the Chinese government that is to tackle slower rate of economic growth. It is still growing 6% compared to what's happening in the United States or here in the UK. You know, it's a figure that these countries can only dream about. But it is true that the economy, when the economy is slowing down, the government has to tackle all sorts of social unrest. And also China doesn't have democratic system 
people cannot democratically elect the government. Therefore, that brings up more challenges to the Communist Party that is in charge of the entire economy at the moment. So the Communist Party is under pressure, and it's it's also in the spotlight right now because this is the time of year when the annual parliamentary session is underway. Yes, indeed, thousands of delegates from across the country is gathering in Beijing at the moment, and they are going to discuss a range of issues, including uh, the economic policy, you know, taxation, you know, pollution, childcare, perhaps, and also um, how to deal with the aging population. So, lots on the table. But I think the main issue, the main concern for the party leader in Beijing is still the direction of the Chinese economy, as well as the direction of the internal politics. So, this is when the Chinese people and and people around the world really are looking to see what the government is going to cough up. What answers do they have? Yes, indeed, it does symbolizes the direction of the travel of the economy as well as politics. Thanks, Vincent. Let's go to the studio and meet our guests. My panel this week are three people who've been following events in China very closely for years. In our studio in Beijing, I have Sophia Yen. She's the Beijing correspondent of the Telegraph newspaper, and she specializes in China's economy. I also have Ian Johnson there with her. He's a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist writing out of Beijing. And also down the line from Newark, New Jersey, I'm joined by Sarah Su, an economist with the State University of New York. As Vincent mentioned, the National People's Congress, China's annual parliamentary meeting, is in session. Sometimes it can be quite celebratory, a chance for communist leaders to pat themselves on the back. But this year, amid worries about the economy, the mood was a bit different. Listen to some of the language from the big speech delivered by the premier, Li Keqiang. In the past year, China has faced a complex and severe internal and external situation that has rarely been seen for years, with the economy bearing the new downward pressure. But under the staunch leadership of the Communist Party, with President Xi Jinping at the helm, the Chinese people of all ethnic groups forged ahead vigorously and fulfilled major targets in economic and social development. It also made major progress in securing a decisive victory in building a moderately prosperous society in all respects. Sophia, you were at the NPC and you heard the Premier's speech. What was the atmosphere like there? Well, like you would expect any other year, there's been a lot of propaganda and a lot of political theater going on um, as the NPC kicked off. Premier Li Keqiang's speech did take a more muted tone, and it's a really marked difference from the sort of environment we were in at this time last year in China. This time last year, President Xi Jinping had scrapped term limits. He looked every bit the unstoppable strongman. But you fast forward a year to now, China's really started to kind of roll back its rhetoric, its swagger, what it wants to show. And this tone that Premier Li had in his speech on Tuesday definitely was kind of walking things back a little bit and just trying to at least, you know, sort of point toward the fact that there are some challenges ahead on the road and try to just manage expectations a little bit more. Ian, you travel widely around China. What have you been witnessing in the past year? What's the economic outlook outside of Beijing? Well, when struck by the fact that a lot of the things that have driven China's growth over the past decade, things like urbanization and big infrastructure projects, 
that there's really, they've hit a point of diminishing returns. The country's not urbanizing as quickly as before. There aren't as many people moving from the countryside into cities. And the big infrastructure projects are still being built, but they're making less and less economic sense. I was I was just in a western uh, city, Xi'an, and they're they're building a big high-speed rail out to Qinghai, which is this uh, province on the Tibetan plateau. And this engineer I was talking to said to me, I don't know if this makes any sense at all to build a high-speed rail. There just isn't the population density. It's a huge amount of money we're spending. But these things keep getting built, and I, I think there's a sense that it just makes less and less sense. And it's true that the government's talking a good game about this. They're trying to make the structural changes. But actually, they've been saying this now for years. And there is scant evidence that it's really happening yet. All right. And Sarah, from your vantage point in the United States, what are you seeing? Are there concerns about economic challenges in China that Li Keqiang referred to in his speech? Well, I think that there are um, a couple of different and opposing views. Um, One of them can be found within members of the Trump administration um, who view China as a threat. And Trump has been pretty interested in this U.S.-China trade war, which has been going on, and um, has gloated that the U.S. has more power, more economic power than China does and can outlast China in a trade war. So there's that perspective that uh, is triumphant regarding China's declining growth. And then there's another aspect for firms like Apple and Starbucks that are interested in um, China's growing consumption. China's economic slowdown is a serious barrier to their expansion in that nation. And also for people who are interested in selling real estate in uh, certain areas of the country, they see a slowdown in China's foreign direct investment and overseas real estate investment that is very concerning for them. Okay, so we have worries mounting inside China. And also, Sarah, you mentioned that that bubbling U.S.-China trade war. For now, let's take a closer look at the challenges facing the economy and how the party is trying to deal with them. It's been said that China has a GDP fetish. And as I mentioned earlier in my conversation with Vincent Nee, there's a fixation on GDP growth and what the targeted growth number is. Historically, why is this such a big deal in China in comparison to other major economies? Sophia, can you take a stab at that? Well, for so long, we've seen double-digit growth in the Chinese economy. The slowdown that we're seeing now was always on the docket. And the big question the entire world uh, has asked for a very long time is how fast that slowdown will occur. Because if there's a really big ramp, a really fast ramp down, uh, you know, China is the world's second largest economy. If China sneezes, the rest of the world catches a cold. So that's why all eyes have been on China for so long. And this idea of GDP targets, it's quite measurable, you know, for local governments here. It's something that they can try to strive for. It's a number that they can go for. And it's a way for a country in in the state of development that China is to try to track their own progress. But that's been problematic for a lot of different ways because these numbers don't really capture a lot of the nuances that are really happening. And so this shift, there is a a marked difference in the pace of growth that we've seen. But again, as I said, it doesn't capture certain nuances that are now starting to happen in the economy as Beijing tries to move from this old growth model of low-end, cheap manufacturing uh, cheap exports towards something that's a little bit more uh, advanced manufacturing towards services, higher consumption. Can we trust the numbers coming out of Beijing? 
Well, we don't have to trust the numbers, but I think we can say that they're fairly consistent. And it was fast, and and now it's slowing. And it's about half or even less than half than it was in in the go-go years, in the 2000s. So you see this across the board, and this leads to all kinds of social tensions inside China. Because in the past, there was also unequal growth, but all boats were rising, so people were willing to give the government a buy, because at least things were getting better. And people could sort of always feel that at least their children's future would be better. And now it's not so sure. Uh, Housing prices are unaffordable. It's really hard for young people to buy a place, even in a second tier or third tier city. It's harder and harder to find work because you have to be really well qualified for this new economy that China wants to build. So the challenges are really are not less than in the past. And I think that it's um, it's something it's it's just a series of headaches for the government. So if we look at at how Chinese people are dealing with the economic challenges on a day-to-day basis, maybe they don't mind so much that GDP figures or GDP targets aren't completely accurate. But Sarah Xu, what do you think of of outsiders who who are looking at China and its progress? Does it matter that they might be questioning the veracity of the numbers coming out of Beijing? Of course. Um, So people are concerned um, outside of China and even within China that a lot of the growth is created by this artificial stimulus, that um, it's government um, expansion of credit as well as fiscal stimulus that is um, responsible for economic growth now. But I just want to go back for a moment. I noted that people in China may not be concerned with the GDP figure. I think that people are concerned about growth itself and their own circumstances. And I think that some people are concerned about whether they're going to maintain their employment in the future now. The situation is becoming increasingly dire in terms of the job market. And I think that, you know, this is something that people are really keeping an eye on. Let's turn now and look at the big picture for a moment to look at why the economy is really starting to slow down. When we talk about the Chinese economy, are we talking about a completely state-run economy? Are there any truly private companies, Sophia? Well, for a very long time, China has always, you know, they talk about the iron bicycle. A lot of people use that term. I mean, a lot of companies, a lot of very important state industries have been obviously government backed. You know, you think oil and gas, utilities, all this infrastructure, banks. So a lot of these have always had government support. A lot of private industry has had a lot of implicit government support, too. They may not be your typical state owned enterprise, but they're certainly getting subsidies and other sort of you know blessings somewhere in the background. And that's helped them rise. And the big question is whether or not China can innovate in a way that it will help the economy continue to grow. Well, if I could just jump in right there, it reminds me also in when I was covering China's accession to the WTO in the late 1990s, when I was a macroeconomic reporter for the Wall Street Journal, uh, there was this assumption that the that the state sector would diminish. And there was this, uh, it wasn't just a hope, but there was this belief that as China joined the WTO and things moved forward, the role of the state would get less and less. And there was this term, a very famous book on Chinese economy called Growing Out of the Plan, that China would just grow out of this. The government didn't really buy into that. And after China joined the World Trade Organization, it's sort of, and especially under Xi Jinping, I think, it's kept the role of the state sector strong and in a privileged position. And so, yes, you do have some large 
private companies that make some very interesting products and are good. But I don't think it's as much as what people expected 20 years ago when the reforms were really in high gear and China seemed to be moving toward a more and more vibrant economy. I think this is what's what's also causing the problem. I mean, state enterprises may be necessary in certain sectors of the economy. They may be defensible, especially for a growing economy. But I think that overall, the role of the state is deadening in a whole number of areas, including the banks. Uh, Ian raises some good points. There's a sense here in China amongst private entrepreneurs that perhaps the government is supporting state-owned enterprise now a little bit too much. And so for a lot of smaller companies, you know, they're finding it hard to get loans, for instance, to get things off the ground. And they really need that kind of help to move things forward. Another project that the government has said many times that it wants to do, it wants to pivot away from low-end manufacturing that relies on unskilled labor, and it wants to pivot towards high-end advanced manufacturing. Sarah, why is this important? Is it realistic? Well, it's certainly realistic. And I think it's really important for any country that's trying to move up in terms of its level of development. So this would bring more profits to Chinese firms. And it also would increase the level of innovation happening within China. And so it's critically important in order for manufacturing firms to create more jobs, have more money, bolster the education sector and consumption. I think it's quite important the only thing that cannot be mentioned and has not been mentioned in Li Keqiang's speech was the phrase made in China 2025, which underscores all of that, encompasses all of that. And um, that includes a lot of targets such as increasing smart manufacturing and expanding on 5G technology, which would replace the 4G cell phone technology that we have, and also increasing the application of artificial intelligence and blockchain chain and so on. These are really very important technologies and China could be a global leader on this front. China could be and it has announced its intention to pivot to oversee this pivot. But can this pivot happen without putting a lot of unskilled laborers out of work? Is it realistic from that point of view? Ian? Well, that's a that's a great point. And Sarah mentioned smart manufacturing. And I think smart manufacturing needs smart workers. And the problem that China has is it has, surprisingly, even though we were, we're very aware of elite universities in China and that they're ranked globally very highly, such as Peking University or Tsinghua University, but overall... China has a fairly unskilled labor force. Only It's this astounding number that only 11% of rural workers that make up about two-thirds of the future labor force, only 11% of them have a high school education. And this is something the government has, is trying to pivot to and investing a lot of money in now. But it could be that it's almost too late or that and, and that some of the education initiatives are sort of hollow. Uh, some of the vocational schools for rural workers really have nothing to them. I think this is going to be a big change and something to keep an eye on look, going forward. Well, that's a good question. If the workers don't seem to be there, that figure you mentioned, 11 percent, quite a shocking figure, really. But let's turn to demographics for a moment, because China has the world's fastest aging society, around 20 20% of the population is over 60, and that's expected to peak at 35% by 2050. Now, some say that China is going to grow old before it can grow rich. What's being done to deal with that gray wave? Uh, Sarah Su? 
Well, it's a major challenge in many countries, uh, including in Europe, Japan, and the United States. Japan has struggled with it for a long time. It's a major challenge. I mean, on the one hand, you have to have more government services in order to provide care for seniors, as well as assist people with their meals and getting around. And, you know, on the other hand, you have to find a way to support the working age population as well. Um, so I think that this is going to be something that China really struggles with. There's always reasons to be pessimistic in any, you know, a big developing economy like China. I would say, though, that there's a lot of resilience. There's still a fair amount of solidarity among family members. Um, so, yeah, there are going to be challenges when you have old people that have to rely on, you know, one child and, and so on. And, and also the government is, is aware of this. And there's one thing also to be said about China in contrast to other developing countries. It does have, and sometimes it's a problem to have such a strong government, but the government can organize things a little bit better than, than other countries can quite often. We've gone through the challenges facing the economy in broad brushstrokes, but let's go back now to the NPC, the parliamentary session happening this week. Has anything been announced so far that you think will actively address any of the problems we've outlined, Sophia Yen? Oh, that's a good question. Um, no. <laughs> that's the short, easy answer. You know, China is always about talking in platitudes, and they've done that again. They've made some announcements on mini stimulus. You know, they're not going back to what they did, say, in 2008. They had then a, nearly a $600 billion stimulus program. They're not going and, you know, bringing out this giant stimulus bazooka to try to boost the economy. They are trying to halt the slide. But again, these are very small steps. And so far, it hasn't really been enough to move the needle. And the government has far less, in terms of the tools in its toolbox, far less levers that it can pull now that it's got to deal with the trade war with the U.S. Okay, a bit of pessimism there from Sophia. Sarah, Sarah, what's your viewpoint? <laughs> well, I think that, um, you know, there are several things that could boost the economy. The government has announced a reduction in the value-added tax rate for uh, manufacturers from 16% to 13%. That will certainly give a boost to manufacturing. And uh, this will help them a lot. The value-added tax rate for construction and transport companies was also cut by one percentage. There have been announcements with regard to social services. And I think it's also um, important that the government has stated in recent months that it would support the private sector. I mean, none of the announcements were bombshells, as Sophia mentioned, but I think that these are all things that could um, bolster some of the flagging growth. Maybe no bombshells, but Ian, did you hear anything that made you raise your eyebrows? You know, I think we have to think of the session of parliament as a political ritual. It's tightly scripted. All the major points have sort of been telegraphed ahead of time. They've been floated in trial balloons in December and January and February. And it's a great piece of, of political theater held in the Great Hall of the People with this big red star overhead and all of these lights and people, flags and so on and so forth. But it's more like a halftime show or something like that that's sort of meant to show that something's going on. There's some razzle-dazzle, um, some movie stars and other people who are in this consultative conference come. But, you know, it's, it's, it's meant to just show that they're serious about tackling these issues. Sarah listed them all, and it, it is, I think, a good faith effort on the government's point and part on, to, to, to do that. And that's what I think it's meant to signal to the population and, and to the world. 
Okay, thank you. We have to take a short break now, but just to remind you, you're listening to a podcast edition of The Real Story from the BBC World Service. This week, we're asking whether China's economy has reached its peak. Each week, we tackle a different topic, and you can download the program every Friday. I encourage you to subscribe so you won't miss an edition. And there are also many other BBC World Service podcasts to choose from. You could try Witness, our history series told by the people who were there. First-hand accounts from some of the most important events which have helped shape our lives and the places we live. There are five podcasts a week and an incredible archive to delve into. And do please do let us know what you think of this podcast from The Real Story or any ideas for topics you'd like us to look into. You can email us at our new email address, therealstory at bbc.co.uk. But now, let's get back to this edition of The Real Story with me, Celia Hatton, looking at China's slowing economy. Joining us to discuss this from our studio in Beijing, Sophia Yen. She's the Beijing correspondent for The Telegraph newspaper, and she specializes in writing about China's economy. I also have Ian Johnson there with her. He's a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist writing out of Beijing. And down the line from Newark, New Jersey, I'm joined by Sarah Su, an economist with the State University of New York. This week, nearly 3,000 delegates from across China are meeting in Beijing to discuss the state of the country. Clapping in Beijing's Great Hall of the People, a sense of unity. This is what China's communist leaders wanted you to fixate on this week. And here are some of the sounds that the party would rather avoid talking about. Workers at the Shenzhen Jasek Technology Company, they took to the streets last year calling for their own union and also for workers who'd been fired to be allowed to return to their jobs. This is just one of thousands of protests catalogued every year by the China Labor Bulletin. It's a Hong Kong-based organization that says its aim is to help laborers, especially migrant workers, to organize. Jeff Crothel is their spokesman. How many protests are there and are they on the rise? The number of Protests by workers has remained at a pretty high level consistently for the last few years. We did see a bit of an increase over the last year or so. We keep track of protests that are posted by workers on Chinese social media. And last year, in the whole of 2018, we recorded about 1,700. We estimate that that's only about 10% of the actual total. It's a pretty high number, probably not as high as at the height of protests in 2014-15, but it's still a, a pretty substantial number. What's driving these protests? Fundamentally, very basic violations of labor rights. The number one cause of worker protests in China is simply not being paid on time. Other important causes are non-payment of social insurance, pensions, medical insurance, non-payment of compensation for when workers are laid off or relocated. Those are the basic things, the rights that workers have outlined in China's substantial canon of labor law. Those rights are routinely ignored and violated by employers across the country in just about every industry you can imagine. What percentage of protests 
achieve their aims? It's very difficult to say. I think most cases, workers can get a little bit of what they're asking for. In very few cases, they'll get everything. A very typical example we saw just a couple of weeks ago, a thousand workers were laid off from an online secondhand car trading platform. Those workers were laid off without any compensation. They'd stage a protest demanding their wages in full and their bonuses for the year. What they were offered was maybe half of that. And some decided they would take the offer. Others decided they would hold out for something better. But generally, workers often get half of what they're asking for. And then they think, well, it's not really worth the time and effort trying to get more. So they take what they can get and move on. Are there any attempts by the state to minimise the hardships of the newly unemployed? Only if the workers cause a fuss. That's one of the main reasons why workers do stage these collective protests, because they want to bring their plight to the attention of the local government. And many times local government officials will try to mediate in a dispute and try and get the workers some portion of what they're owed. But where a factory closes down and the boss just disappears and there's no money to be found, it's going to be very difficult for the workers to get anything at all. Okay, you've outlined the benefits to protesting, but are there any risks when workers turn out onto the streets? There's always a risk that if the protest is deemed too large or gets out of hand or deliberately antagonises the local government or the police, arrests will be made. But we estimate that only 25% of worker protests do actually end up with police intervening. And in a very small proportion of those will arrests actually be made. In most cases, protests are fairly small scale and short lived. But Jeff, we have seen a crackdown on labour activist network, haven't we? Yes. Yeah, that's different. That's not really related to specific labour disputes. That's part of a wider crackdown by the Chinese authorities on civil society in general. But at the same time, unfortunately, the official trade union is not doing what it should do. And that's why we keep on seeing protests arriving, because there's no effective union representation in the workplace And the union is essentially powerless to stand up to bosses who do abuse workers. I think frustrations over time will begin to build and build. Whether or not that translates into widespread protest is another question. Certainly, the party is very aware that more and more ordinary working families are struggling to make a living and frustrations related to that might eventually boil over. What has been the effect of the crackdown on labour activist networks? You're basically taking out of circulation the few people on the ground in China who can actually help workers resolve their disputes and get more than the bare minimum in their disputes with employers. The trade union should be learning from these people, not taking them off the streets. And it doesn't help the government because these labour activists did actually act as some kind of safety valve that could contain worker anger and dissatisfaction with the government. You take them out of the equation and you're just left with increasing numbers of very unhappy workers. 
Jeff Crowthall, let's turn back to our guests. If we're seeing a large number of protests, lots of unhappy workers, but no serious threat to the party's leadership, as Jeff indicated, does that challenge something that's often said about China's one-party rule that the Communist Party will remain in power as long as it keeps the economy growing? Sarah Sue, is that theory true? Well, to some extent, if people are able to get a job after they have been laid off or not received wages sufficiently, then I think that they will be less likely to be unhappy and to embark upon these protests. But I think that if the leadership is unable to provide people with jobs going forward, especially jobs that suit their skill set, then I think this really could challenge the authority of the central government. A lot rides on employment, not only the level of employment, but also the quality and the type of employment. Ian Johnson, would you agree that it's the quality of employment that's also important? Yes. Again, to go back to that point of resilience, I remember when they had the big round of economic reforms in the late 1990s and you had the Rust Belt in the northeast of China. All those factories were shedding jobs. People still found some sort of employment to get through by selling stuff on the sides of roads. And there was a large gray market economy. Sometimes we say that the statistics overstate growth, but there's also a lot of off-the-books activity that don't get captured. But it is still important. In the long run, the basic social contract in China is we'll run the country and in exchange we will provide economic growth and some sort of a better future for you and your family. If they can't do that, then they are in trouble. Of course, an authoritarian state can always use increasing violence or overseas adventures to keep people fixated on something else. Say Taiwan, those kind of issues can be whipped up, or the South China Sea. But in the end, the government's legitimacy does come from running the country well. But if the economy is truly resilient, why is it so difficult for the government to enact long-term reforms, even if they're necessary by all accounts? Well, I think there's just a lot of vested interests. There have not been significant economic reforms in China in about 15 years. Since the WTO entry, and then there were some reforms in the 2000s, but basically there's nothing has been going on here in terms of economic reforms for a number of years. And you have more and more entrenched interest groups that do not want change the big state-owned enterprises, they don't want to see competition. And of course, they're very powerful. They're very close to the Communist Party, essentially adjuncts to the Communist Party. The party gets its support from these big SOEs. And so it gets harder and harder to push reforms. I mean, it's hard to do that in any country. If you think of the United States and how long that country has struggled with health care reform, or, you know, you can pick any country and there have been these reforms that have just never gotten enacted. And China is the same. But the longer it goes on, I think it just gets harder and harder to do. Sophia? There's a lot of uncertainty in general that was sort of unexpected for China. We go back to the trade war a lot now that China's got with the U.S. I mean, this has created a certain environment where they've got to deal with external factors that they weren't anticipating. And there's a sense that if they can't sort of manage that outside relationship, that there's maybe possibly a question as to whether or not they can manage sort of domestically what's going on. So there is an image issue that China has to address in terms of managing the trade war while also managing the economy. And so it's sort of a perfect storm right now because you've got so many different things that China's got to handle. And trying to prioritize what needs to happen first is pretty difficult. I mean, it sort of really all needs to happen all at once, but that's obviously impossible for Beijing. 
And you can't blame the previous government like you can in so many other countries, right? In China's situation, the same party has been in power for generations now. Does that make it more vulnerable? Well, I think you see now there's a lot of premium placed on the kind of propaganda around the Communist Party. You know, long live Xi Jinping. Lots of ideas about believing in the party and making sure that the general public believe that the Communist Party will continue to be the guardian of the future, that they know what's best. And so I think part of this propaganda is meant to shore up confidence amongst the public that, in fact, yeah, the Communist Party knows what they're doing, even when things are getting tough. Sarah Su, is the trade war between the U.S. and China then a bit of a propaganda gift in some ways to Beijing because it can simply blame the Trump administration? I don't think that Beijing views it as a gift per se. Definitely, it has roused the ire of many Chinese people who are now less willing to invest in the U.S. and may prefer Chinese products over imported products from the U.S. But I don't think that it's necessarily a political tool, or it hasn't been fully used in that way. Although, what's interesting is that President Xi has stated sort of indirectly that China is now the leader of globalization, which to some extent is true as the Trump administration has withdrawn from the global stage. China has taken advantage of that vacuum, particularly with regard to the One Belt, One Road project, which seeks to invest overseas in infrastructure in many developing countries. Indeed, the One Belt, One Road project, it's trying to set up new global trade routes leading from Beijing. Sophia, has Xi Jinping overreached himself, though? It's starting to hit a few roadblocks now. Yeah, what China was trying to do was to increase its global influence. And what's interesting is, obviously, if the domestic economy is suffering, whether or not China can continue to do these projects abroad falls into question. You know, a lot of these countries that China is investing in, Venezuela is one of them, for instance, There's a lot of debt that could be involved. And if China can't recoup those losses, what does that mean for Beijing's coffers? There's concern from foreign countries generally that this would be sort of the debt diplomacy that China could then seize assets across borders and have more power that way. But just going back to sort of a a more money issue, if these countries just simply cannot pay up, what does that mean for China when it's squeezed at home and abroad? And what would a major slowdown in China do to the global economy? So many developing countries are relying heavily on China's continuing assistance. So much of its diplomacy hinges on those relationships. Ian Johnson, how can this continue? Is is this quite a risky proposition for Beijing? Well, I think it highlights the fact that a lot of the diplomacy that China is pursuing now really is sort of checkbook diplomacy in some way or some way of leveraging its economy to bring in other countries into its economic system. It's not doing it through soft power and by creating a model that's attracting a large section of the world. There are many developing countries that look in China and say, look at what it's done over the past generation. This is great. We'd like to do something similar. But there's still, in many areas, the soft power is lacking. And it's sort of like one belt and one road is similar to the Confucius Institutes, which try to spread Chinese culture around the world. They're successful in some areas, but there's also a backlash growing in other parts of the world. And so I think that these are still sort of tentative efforts that haven't really gotten off the ground in terms of pushing China's influence. And I think they probably have a relatively short shelf life. Even the 
Belt and Road. Some countries are now questioning the deals. In Malaysia, for example, under the relatively new government, they're questioning it. And I think in the long run, that sort of weakens China's impact around the world. One point that I want to make is that when you're talking about politics and checkbook diplomacy, the minute China doesn't have the money that other countries want and need, what does that mean in terms of how they approach China in issues that they don't necessarily see eye to eye on? You know, right now we're seeing a big concern over human rights violations that the UN has pointed out in China, these internment camps in Xinjiang. A lot of countries have largely remained silent on the issue, possibly because they get quite a bit of money from China. There are business and investment ties with a lot of these countries that perhaps in the past have said something and been a little bit more vocal about this sort of human rights treatment. But this time around, we haven't seen as much of that. And again, it's linked to how much power economically China has over these other nations. Well, let's just take another look at these Belt and Road projects. Are they really dead in the water, Sarah Xu? Well, I think that a lot of countries view this as a real lifeline. They really are interested in developing infrastructure projects. There is, of course, a lot of concern about how the projects are financed through China's development banks. And it's not completely transparent, the terms of the deals and so on. And it's also not clear what will happen in the case of a default. Is the IMF going to step in and bail the countries out and so on? That's really not clear. But I think that some countries really do view it as providing crucial infrastructure. Some students that I had in a class recently from Africa have really appreciated China's presence in their countries, even though they also recognize that there is a kind of resistance to the Chinese who have used a lot of their own workers in many of these projects. But at the same time, they appreciate the boost in economic growth that these infrastructure projects have brought. That's quite a positive outlook. Sophia Yan, what are you seeing from Beijing? Well, Belt and Road is a program that Xi Jinping announced back in 2013. It's been a number of years, and it's changed in terms of how Beijing seeks to present it to the world. More recently, it's been trying to assuage concerns about what China's real motive is. There are worries that maybe this is a way for them to be a little bit more strategic about their military interests, a chance for them to go abroad in a fashion that's masked with these infrastructure projects, and perhaps they'll be doing something else behind the scenes instead. But again, this issue of how these projects are managed and run and whether or not there's any sort of corruption involved, questions have always swirled around this. You know, when it comes to Malaysia, there's concern that maybe the previous government had agreed to a deal that Malaysia simply can't really afford, and that is something that they don't necessarily want to be responsible for going forward. And so China is starting to see some of this backlash and needs to be able to respond to that because these concerns aren't going to go away. You know, Malaysia is not the only country involved in Belt and Road. And for a lot of these nations, they have to really think about how they can make this work on both ends. Some countries in Kazakhstan, for instance, there's some sense among some people that it's a bit of a one-way initiative that China, as it sends through the old Silk Road, these goods by land, that it will just be China sending things out and not as much going in. And so that this would be sort of beneficial more for the Chinese than for their partners.
I want to focus the conversation back onto the Chinese president, Xi Jinping. Now, he's really positioned himself at the center of the Communist Party, like few leaders before him, you know, dating back to, to Mao Zedong. We mentioned the pressures that China is facing from its global partners. We've also mentioned the domestic economic pressures, the expectations of China's citizens that they're placing on the party. Is Xi Jinping vulnerable because he's put himself at the center of all of these promises coming from the state? Ian Johnson, what do you think? On the one hand, I have a series of question and answers with public intellectuals in China, and I've been doing this for a number of years. And a lot of them, probably not surprisingly, don't like him. He's cracking down on free speech and telling university teachers what they can teach or not teach and so on and so forth. But I also do a lot of work with people, working class people, who are often involved in religious organizations and so on and so forth and write about that quite a bit. And he's quite popular among a lot of ordinary people. He still cuts a good figure on the world stage. His wife is glamorous. And the propaganda, for now at least, is working pretty well. It almost works to the point where we're talking about the Belt and Road Initiative, where a lot of people think that this is a kind of welfare program that China's doing out of the goodness of its heart for countries around the world. I mean, that's how it's often seen by Chinese people. And if anything, they think, you know, Xi Jinping is being too soft and too nice to these countries, which is not exactly how a lot of people overseas would see it. But I think he's seen pretty positively. And of course, this could change if the economy goes goes down. But I think for now, he remains popular and the propaganda still works quite effectively. And it's only people who are really able to sort of look beyond that, who have access to, say, overseas websites, who have VPNs that allow them to jump over the firewall and so on. They have a bit of a sense. But I think overall, he remains pretty popular. But as the economy continues to slow, will he remain popular? Sophia? The interesting point here is that there's not really another alternative. I mean, who would run the country if not Xi Jinping at this moment? You know, he's engaged for years on this anti-corruption crackdown, and there's been some discussion of whether or not that really was about cleaning up corruption or whether it was about sweeping out political enemies. It might be a little bit of both. Elite politics in China obviously very opaque. So in a way, he set himself up with this political maneuvering that there is no alternative. In a way, it's sort of just got to be him. I want to finish our program with a final question for each one of our guests. Has China reached its peak as an economic power, Sarah Xu? Yes and no. I think that China does have many reforms that it could carry out in order to continue its growth and even increase its growth. I see the services sector as an area of reform that if China really focused on increasing competition in this area and stopped paying close attention to the many vested interests in this area, that it really could bolster economic growth. But at the same time, the question is, is China willing to do this? And the answer for now is no. And that's because President Xi has his own base, like President Trump in the United States. His base is the red aristocrats. It is people associated with state-owned enterprises and who are those vested interests. And so it's very unlikely that China is going to really radically reform its services sector. 
And in the trajectory that it's going upon now, I think it's relatively unlikely that China can really ratchet up its level of growth simply by focusing on high-tech manufacturing and a few other areas. It, it really would have to do something more radical. Ian, has China reached its peak as an economic power? Well, not necessarily. I think the problem sometimes when we analyze China is we put it on too much of a pedestal. And because it is the world's most populous country, everything that it does is a series of superlatives. But a lot of countries have been here before. A lot of countries have made the leap from being poor, from having a per capita GDP of something like $1,000, to being a mid-income country of ten or $15,000. The harder thing is what comes next, and not very many countries have done that. There have been countries in the region like South Korea, Taiwan, in Europe a few countries have done it, like Ireland, say, over the past couple of decades, but not very many countries have done it, and many of them have fallen down because of political instability or wars or vested interests, elites that couldn't agree to reforms that would make the country stronger, and they stagnated. We see that, for example, in Latin America. China needs a new round of reforms. It needs another Deng Xiaoping-style figure who can say we need to open the windows and even if some flies come in, that's okay. Right now, the government is not like that. It's like they're very scared of any fly getting into the room. So every window is locked and sealed shut. And that means that the place is kind of asphyxiating slowly. And it's not going to be a quick decline or something. But unless they do something, they can only live off their past glories for so long. At some point, they have to move forward. But right now, there's really no pressure for that. Because, as Sarah was saying, the vested interests and everything in the political climate here is toward stasis, is toward non-change. And it may take a sort of crisis of some form to push reforms to the next level. But right now, I don't see anything happening. Sophia Yan, let's end with you. What's your outlook? Has China reached its peak or do you think it can pull off another economic miracle? I think China still has a ways to go. It has already been an economic miracle. The question now is what the government chooses to prioritize to get to that next level. And it seems like a lot of it has to do with how they handle the working class in a way and just the general population. As you're trying to pivot this giant ship, you know, this country of 1.4 billion people, this economy that's about $13 trillion, it's a giant, giant ship to try to turn in a different direction. And so Beijing's got a, a big challenge ahead of itself. And much of that will have to rely on the people, having the right people trained in the right ways, having the right people in the right jobs, where we're trying to push forward and, and work in innovation and to do this whole advanced manufacturing plan that the government has set forth, making sure they've got all those little pieces in place will sort of determine how far China can go in this next round. And change is hard. It's not a simple thing. And China is certainly not an exception to the rule in that regard. Okay, well, we end with calls for change from all three of my guests. That's it for this week on The Real Story. Thanks to our guests. Sophia Yen, she's the Beijing correspondent of The Telegraph newspaper. Ian Johnson is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist writing out of Beijing. And Sarah Xu is an economist with the State University of New York. From me, Celia Hatton, and the team, that's The Real Story for this week. Thanks for